On the second Sunday of every month, we have a Discover class for folks who are looking for a church home, maybe have been visiting and worshiping with us for a while. So that's coming up in March. It'll be after the 8.30 service and after the 11 o'clock service. A number of people in the first service were asking me, when is that class again? When is that class again? So if you're a guest today, we invite you to fill this out. Maybe this is the second time. you got a little card in front of your chair right there. Just fill that out. We'd like to have a record of your attendance, but also I'll send you a text reminder um, about that class should you choose to attend. And you can text STOP if you don't want to get them anymore. But uh, it, it may serve as a good reminder. I know we have several guests here this morning. We're so glad to have you with us. So Michael, Michael was born on January 15, 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. His father, also named Michael, is Michael Sr., was the minister of Ebenezer Church, a large Baptist congregation. At his childhood home, Michael and his two siblings... They would read aloud from the Bible as instructed by their father. After dinner, uh, Michael's grandmother would tell lively stories from the Bible to her grandchildren. Michael memorized verses. He sang hymns. He was baptized at age seven. In 1934, the Ebenezer Church sent their minister, Michael Sr., to go on a multinational trip, including to Berlin, Germany. While there, he visited many sites that were associated with the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation, including the Reformation leader, Martin Luther. And he was deeply impressed by the power of Luther's protest. So upon returning home in August 1934, Michael King Sr. changed his name to Martin Luther King Sr. And he changed his son's name to what? Martin Luther King Jr., and now you know the rest of the story. Hey, there are a lot of factors that influence our identity, who we are and who we believe ourselves to be. Well, the, the one factor we're going to talk about today is maybe the most important one, and that is what God says about our identity in the Word. We're going to look at just one verse, really, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But there are four things that God says about us there. That's just what we're going to talk about. Number one. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. In the original language, uh, the word race there is genos. Uh, it is some versions, it's translated family. and some versions, it's translated people. It can mean any group of people that are related by their bloodline. This was said of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They shared the bloodline, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel later, Moses, David, and so on. They were a chosen race. Must have felt good to be chosen. For what purpose? They were chosen to provide the physical lineage for the Christ, the Messiah who was to come. Back in 1995, my family was chosen. We were contacted by Disney World in Orlando and our family was invited to come and take a free trip to Disney World and to be in a parade in our honor. And so we took advantage of that. We went to Disney World. We had a parade in our honor. There was a couple, other, a couple thousand other people in this parade. And the one thing that we all had in common was our last name, Jones. And it was a publicity event to publicize the grand opening of the Indiana Jones Spectacular. <laughs> That's the truth. 
They invited Joneses from all over the state to get in free, get a t-shirt, march in the parade. I tell you, everybody wanted to be a Jones that day. And it's the first time I can remember where our very common name of Jones afforded us an uncommon blessing. But it feels good to be chosen, and Christians are in that chosen genos. Now, the word race, it's a little bit loaded these days. I found this quote by a geneticist pretty interesting. His name is Manolis Dermicus. He writes, he's a professor at the University of Geneva. He criticizes attempts to pin down both ancestral ethnicity and race based on DNA. He says, genes can identify a person and find related people, but there is no genetic meaning, he says, of race or even ancestry. Just because DNA can say you are related to a large number of people who live in a place doesn't mean you are from that place. And he says, the great irony of genetics is that instead of showing how different we are, we have learned from a biological standpoint, we are 99.9% the same. But spiritually speaking, we are a chosen race, a people, a family, not because we're related biologically by our blood, but because we're related by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Acts 20, 28, the church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. No matter how different we may be in other ways, we are all the same in this. We all share the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means we are chosen in God's eyes. One of the songs we sometimes sing has this lyric, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Chosen. All right, four things God says about us. Number one, chosen race. Number two, royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. This also was said of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They were called a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6. Now, back there in the nation of Israel, it was just a minority. It was just an elite few who were priests, even fewer who were royalty. But the Bible says that by virtue of being Christians, being saved, being in the family of God, we are all royal priests. Now, if we think about what priests did back then, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, priests, among other things, they were mediators between God and man. They were, they were offering animal sacrifices as sin offerings and guilt offerings on behalf of the other Israelites to bring them back into a right relationship with God so that they could be forgiven and that relationship be restored. Now, as we Christians, as we function in that role of priests, we do something similar. We are intercessors and we are mediators. We offer sacrifices to God. Now, obviously, we're not offering animal sacrifices, but the sacrifices we offer, the Hebrew writer puts it this way, Hebrews 13. Through him, meaning through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, these are among the spiritual sacrifices that we Christians offer. It's the praise of our lips and doing good. We could say good words and good works. 
Now, obviously, that's something we do when we come together. We've done that this morning. We've praised God. We have thanked God. He has heard the fruit of our lips. We used to sing the song, we bring the sacrifice of praise right into the house of the Lord. But we also take the praises of God, the sacrifice of God, out, outside of the house of the Lord. This is the intercessory factor. This is the mediator factor. This is what we call evangelism, where we take our good words and our good works out into the world. We talk about what God has done for us in the past, saved us, and continues to do as we're working through our hurts, habits, and hang-ups, God helping us, Holy Spirit helping us. In Mark chapter 5, Mark describes what we might call a real-life boogeyman. There was a man who lived in the area of Decapolis, and he was possessed by a couple of thousand demons. And he terrorized the community. He lived in a cemetery. He spent all night screaming. He must have haunted the dreams of the little children. He was a threat to the community. He had supernatural strength, could not be bound by chains until Jesus showed up. Now there's a new sheriff in town, and they have a confrontation, and Jesus cast the demons out of this man. And now he's clean and sober and in his right mind. And he says to Jesus, hey, can I go with you and your disciples and travel around the countryside? And Jesus said, no, no, you can't. That's what he said, Mark 5, 19. He said, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. Which he did. And you know, sometimes it's harder to go home and be a Christian than it is to go abroad and be a Christian. And we're so close to the people at home. They see us, they know us, warts and all. They know if it's genuine or authentic. We got the good words and the good works. But he did that. And he didn't just limit himself to his hometown. He lived in the area of Decapolis, the 10 cities. He traveled to all of those cities. And he gave his testimony. This is what God did for me. This is what Jesus did for me. Now, when Jesus first came there, we read this in Mark chapter 5, the people in the area of Decapolis resisted Jesus. They, they begged him to go away, which he did. But when he came back a few months later, he received warm welcome and reception and bore much spiritual fruit. What was the difference? Maybe a lot of things, but undoubtedly one of them was this man who went home and traveled around giving his testimony and said, this is what the Lord did for me. And he laid a foundation. He prepared the soil for Jesus to come back and have a harvest of righteousness. Our testimony might not be that dramatic, having been dispossessed of thousands of demons. Although for some of you, I'm not so sure. It may not be that dramatic, but all of us can tell about what God has done for us and continues to do for us, and it will have an impact. It will. Okay, so I'm just talking about that in our role and responsibilities as a royal priesthood. Chosen race, royal priesthood. Now, we're going to do four. Here's the third one. Peter says, you are a holy nation. A holy nation. And again, we have this in the Old Testament of Israel. Israel was called a holy nation, Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Holy can mean basically two things, separate and different. Now, I'm going to camp out on the different. God is different from us. He's, our God is a holy God. He's different. He's just a different kind of being than we are. 
And the Bible says that we are to be different as well. One of the commentaries that I was reading in preparation for this message, a commentary on Peter, has this line. It says, we should completely give up the desire to be like other people. Just give it up. That is not holiness. Holiness is being different from other people. And different how? Peter goes on to say, just a few verses later, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So it's two things. One, abstain and keep your behavior excellent. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Remember when we were talking about the clean key about cleaning out our refrigerator, how we have to put off the old man, that old man, that old woman, continually wants to reassert themselves. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists there the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And he says these two are at war within you. It's a civil war. And we never get a day off from the battle. So it's not just you. It's not just me. We're all getting up, and with God's help, we're putting off like these works of the flesh, and we're trying to live a life of excellence, God helping us, and when we do that, we're going to be different, and we're going to get a little bit of attention. Now, somebody, I think, is a great example of this I want to talk about for a second. His name is Brandon Burlesworth. In 1988, 11-year-old Brandon Burlesworth was baptized into Christ in Arkansas. The boy dreamed of playing college football one day for his beloved Arkansas Razorbacks. In the meantime, he was active in church. He was in the bus ministry. He was in the youth ministry. He tried to play football on a little league team without success, almost zero talent. After one humiliating play, the local high school coach took him aside and encouraged him. A high school coach was scouting out that game. Took him aside, encouraged him. Keep trying. That was a turning point in his life. Burlesworth went on to play football. He graduated Harrison High School in 1994 as an all-state selection. He tried out for the Razorbacks. I mean, he, wasn't he wasn't recruited. He tried out for the Razorbacks as a walk-on freshman, right? That's hard to do, walk-on freshman. His faith had grown strong, and he set an example as a college student in moral character, scholastics, and athletic work ethic. He didn't swear, didn't drink alcohol, didn't sleep around. He got up at 5 a.m. every day to read his Bible. As you might expect, he endured a little bit of harassment, a little bit of pushback from his roommates, fellow students, and the other athletes on the team. One night, his roommates tricked him into drinking alcohol. He'd never done that before. They tricked him. And Burlesworth was so convicted that he went to the football field to run the alcohol out of his system. And his roommates were so shamed, they ran with him. Burlesworth transformed his pudgy 300 pounds into a felt 260 pounds, then over the next two years built himself back up to a muscular 300-pound offensive guard. By his sophomore season, he had earned a scholarship and a starting position at right guard on the offensive line. He has been called the greatest walk-on in the history of college football. Burlesworth graduated from the University of Arkansas with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. First time a football player had done that. He was selected in the third round of the 99 NFL draft for the Indianapolis Colts. 
After attending a Colts minicamp, the coaches were impressed enough to pencil him in as the projected starter at right offensive guard. So why haven't we heard of this guy? Eleven days after being drafted, Burlesworth was killed in a car accident on his way back home to attend church with his family. Now I want to show you a clip from the movie based on his life. The movie's called Greater, Greater. And I, I like this clip because, you know, what I'm talking about here is being holy and being different. And it shows a little bit about that. Most of it has to do with him losing weight beyond the Razorbacks. But it shows his moral integrity, his clean language. He wanted to live above reproach. He wouldn't even step off of the sidewalk to take a shortcut across the grass. And he lived a life of excellence, and it drew attention and had an impact. The clip's a little longer than I usually show. It's six minutes, but I couldn't figure out a way to break it up. So get your popcorn out and get ready. Here we go. Six minutes, and then we'll come back and finish up. Thank you. 
<laughs> the crowd goes silent. That's the way the Bible says to silence our enemies, is live a good life of moral excellence. Anyhow, bring back memories, John? I thought that was great. The movie is called Greater. It's a very, very good movie. Hey, we may not be all-star college athletes or NFL players, but we are Brian Burlesworth to someone. someone. Brandon Burlesworth, rather. Really, we are Jesus Christ's representative to someone, and we can have an impact with our lives in holiness. All right, one more here. We're doing four. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. And the fourth one, we are a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. Exodus chapter 19.5 said the same thing of Israel. So you shall be my own possession among all the people. So you'll note it. All four of these things were said about ancient Israel. They were chosen. They were royal priests. They were people of God's own possession. That was true of them. Now it's true of the church. Now it is true of the church. If I understand what the Bible teaches, Israelis are not Israelites. The church is the Israel of God today, the chosen people, the holy nation, the people of God's own possession. Titus 2.14 says, Christ shed his blood to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That people is the church. Sometimes the value of a thing lies in the person who owned it. Famous person, important person. Let me give you a handful of examples. First is a slice of Charles and Diana's wedding cake. Doesn't that look appetizing? Auction last year for $2,450. Yeah, somebody paid that. Aren't you? Doesn't that make you hungry? Number two, 
Winston Churchill's cigar butt. Not a cigar, the cigar butt. $57,000 last year. Muhammad Ali's art collection was auctioned last year for $945,000. It's almost as good as Hunter's, isn't it? All right, and then Einstein's equals MC squared letter, $1.2 million. Michael Jordan's trainers, $1.5 million. Those things have to be awful stanky by now. But you put them on a peat shoe dryer, and it'll freshen them right up. And then the final one, I saved the best for last. The Salvatore Monday is a painting of Jesus Christ, supposedly painted by Leonardo, not DiCaprio, Leonardo da Vinci, auctioned for $450 million. I saved that one for last because he's Jesus, and he's more valuable than all the others put together. But the Bible says our value comes from the fact that we are the possession of God. That was true just by virtue of being created in God's image. But how much more so now that he has purchased us with the precious blood of Christ. We have more value in the eyes of God than most of us can possibly imagine. No matter what anybody has said to you about who you are, what your worth is, or to me, God esteems us as having invaluable, invaluable worth. So Fred Craddock, in his book about his life, tells about he and his wife visited a little restaurant in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. They're sitting there eating. And there's an elderly gentleman who's kind of working the room. You know how a manager will do sometime and go from table to table and talking? This elderly man was doing that, and he made his way over to Fred Craddock's table and just started chatting and said, where are you from? What brings you to this area? What do you do? He found out that Fred was a preacher. And he said, okay, well, I got a preacher story for you. And so Fred invited him to sit down, and he told him this story. He said, back in the day, in these very hills, there was a little boy who was born to a single mother. I said, back in that day, that meant shame. They all knew who his mother was. They just kind of guessed who his father might be. And he grew up being harassed and teased and bullied about that. But he liked to go to this little church. And this country church had a, a big, rough, gruff, preacher. Big man, kind of boisterous, a little bit intimidating, and yet the little boy was drawn to the preacher at the same time. So he would go to that church. He'd kind of sneak in after things got going, and then toward the end, he'd sneak out again so he didn't have to interact with anyone. You know, like some of you do. I'm just kidding. But one day, he got caught. Preacher switched things up, and before he could get out, he's caught in the people that are leaving the back doors. And there's that big preacher shaking people out the door. Oh, I've got to shake his hand. So he, sure enough, he gets up to the preacher. Preacher shakes his hand, looks down at him and says, boy, he said, who are you? He said, wait a minute. I know who you are. You are a child of, and he paused and it kind of got quiet, you know, like the old E.F. Hutton commercial. Kind of got quiet. And the little boy is dying inside because this is what he's lived with all of his life. Oh, you're a child of. But the preacher said, oh, I know who you are. You are a child of God. I can definitely see the resemblance. Slapped him on the behind and said, now, boy, go out and claim your inheritance. And the old man said to Fred Craddock, he said, that's the day I was kind of born again. And he got up, and Fred said, what's your name? And the old man said, Ben Hooper. 
Nice to meet you. And he left. And Fred said he was sitting there and he was thinking and he was thinking. And then he remembered his father telling him about the illegitimate child who was twice elected the governor of Tennessee, Ben Hooper. We are children of God. Let's go out and claim our inheritance. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, not everybody in here has had the easiest upbringing. Not everybody in here has had affirming messages spoken to them, either in their childhood or even now. We pray that you can drive home in our hearts and our spirits and our minds. Our identity and our worth is not based upon what other people think about us, what other people say about us, what the world may say about us. But our identity and our worth is rooted in what you say about us, in your word, that we are chosen, that we are set apart to be holy, that we have a priestly function and responsibility to mediate and intercede for other people, and that we belong to you. May that resonate in our hearts today as we live out the rest of this day and this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.